It's been almost a year since I moved there, which is crazy because time flew. But um, things have been great. Um, to be honest, the change was like a lot for me. Um, I grew for those of you who don't know, I grew up here since I was in third grade, um, all the way through BTM, and like this was like my roots. Like all my friends are here, my family. Like I went to school here my whole life. Like these are like roots, and then having to like uproot everything and and move to Kansas City and like reroute things and make new friendships and find new community and and still love the Lord like all that kind of stuff um, <clears throat> was honestly like a lot of change and it's really hard but I guess one thing that I want to share about is just like um, the one constant thing has been God and uh, I'm really thankful for that um, I was actually just thinking about this um, I think within the past week or within the past couple of weeks I was just thinking about how God is such a faithful friend and when I think about like everything that's changed within the past year for me personally, which I never dreamed would change like this, um, the one faithful thing has been his friendship, and I'm really thankful for that. Um, and I just want to encourage you guys like to not be afraid of like stepping out in faith because the one thing that will remain constant is his friendship and his relationship. Because like the only thing we take on from this life to the next is our relationship with him. Like we're not gonna take. Wait, this sounds bad. But we're not going to take our friends, although we'll see each other in eternity. And we're not going to take our family, although we'll see each other in eternity. Like the one thing that we're going to take from our life now into eternity is the love that we had for him and the love we had with him. And so I just want to encourage you guys, like, um, yeah, to, like, pursue that friendship with him because it's so, it's, like, so worth it. And, like, yeah, like I said, sometimes there are moments. So I don't have a car in Kansas City, so there are sometimes moments when I'm just at home all day. <laughs> But, and honestly, sometimes, sometimes it's good because I'm like, oh, my gosh, I need to relax, and I'll, like, read or something. But there are times when it gets lonely, you know, and I'm like, I can't just walk over to Target. It's, like, 10 miles away. <laughs> so I, I get, you know, sometimes it's lonely, and sometimes I get sad. But, like, I, I've just realized what an amazing friend God has been during the entire thing. And when I'm sad, he's there. And, like, I, what, when I cry, he's there. Like, he really is. And, and it's just I'm just so thankful for his friendship. Um, he's better than any other friend I've made. <laughs> and, um, yeah, I also just want to encourage you guys, like, like I said, I grew up here since I was in third grade. And I've, pretty, I've lived in California since I was five. So, like, I've been at this church since third grade. And so, like, like, I love TKC, but I didn't realize until I moved out to Kansas City that there's so much more that the Lord is doing than we know. Um, and I, there's this one quote that Lou Engel always says, but I think it's his quote. It's someone else's quote. But it says, like, if you want to do something with your life, find out what God is doing in your generation and throw yourself wholeheartedly into it. And honestly, like, God is doing so much in, in the earth and in our generation and in our lifetime that we don't know. And, like, that's something I want to search out. Like, I, I want to throw myself wholeheartedly into it because, honestly, nothing else is gonna last like you know what I mean like you could try to like make a big name for yourself and like try to make a good career for yourself which I'm not I'm not advising against good careers if you like you know definitely pursue good careers but like in the end like it's only the purposes of God that will last because this huge story is being written by one man um and so like I just want to encourage you guys like if you feel the Lord leading you to take a step of faith somewhere like just do it because like you'll find that he's so much bigger than you thought um yeah 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 can I just pray for us okay <laughs> father I just thank you so much um 
just for your faithfulness, Lord, I thank you that you are so faithful, God. You're faithful beyond what we know and what we can see, Father, and you're faithful beyond the moments that we recognize that you're faithful, Father. You're more faithful than we know, and I thank you for your friendship, Father. I thank you for this relationship, Lord, and I just ask that you would give us grace um, to dream with you, Father. Give us grace to walk in faith with you, Father, no matter what the cost um, no matter how scary it is sometimes, no matter how much we don't want to let go of things in our lives, Father, I'm asking that you would draw us with your love, Father, that we would find that knowing you is worth more than anything, Father, that growing in love with you is worth more than anything we could hold on to, Father. So I ask that you would give us the grace, Lord, to hunger for you and to seek after you, God, because you said that only those who seek you would find you, Lord. So I ask that you would cause us to hunger for you more than ever before, especially in what you're doing in our lives lifetime father cause us to grow in hunger for you and that we would find that you're the treasure that's worth finding and laying down everything for god um yeah so lord i, I just ask for grace over us god cause us to grow in love with you father um and to know your love more father we thank you and we love you in your name i pray all right Amen. Okay, I have a couple announcements before we get into the Word today. Um, number one, I'm all dressed up because of our retirement service for Pastor Kim. That's going to be at 4 p.m. later today. What we're going to be doing is we're going to break. I'm going to try and end service by 3.30 so that we can go down and have lunch. Now, this isn't mandatory. You don't have to come to this retirement service, but I want to encourage you, if you've been coming to TKC for a long time or if you've had Pastor Kim, if, if he's personally blessed your life in any major way, um, it really is an honor to him for us to, to be there and to just honor him on his way out and to bless him. Um, he's, he's done so much for this church, right, over this past 35 years the church has been here. Um, so that's announcement number one. Announcement number two is this, that um, we really need help with VBS. We really need help with VBS. Um, I'm, we're asking you as a, as a college ministry, would you please consider helping us? This is, it's basically for the month of June. We need you on Saturday mornings and afternoons. And then the last week of June, I believe, is, is our VBS where we'll need you pretty much every night of that week, okay? Um, this is something that our whole church really gears around. So we are asking for your help. We are going to be having people um, asking you for your help all day today because we really need a lot of volunteers. So please prayerfully consider it um, in joining us, okay? All right, and announcement number three. We have, um, we are going to be moving to summer schedule starting the first week of June, which is in two weeks, I believe, right? Um, so we're having house churches continue to go until the first week of June. Starting the first Wednesday night of June, we're going to be starting our summer schedule, which means we have services, midweek services here on Wednesday nights, starting the first week of June, okay? I want to invite you to join us for our midweek services. We'll be having worship We'll pray. We'll be doing some activities. Some of those nights will be fellowship nights. Um, and also, I want us to go out to eat afterwards. Um, really, one thing the Lord really spoke to us about is that this summer, we're really going to be targeting fellowship and community. We want to get closer as a community. We've talked about it as leaders, and we are going to put a lot of effort into growing friendships, growing community this summer. This is my invitation to you. Be our friend. Be my friend. Okay, Wednesday nights, um, we want to fellowship together, go out to eat, but also we're also having some other fellowship events. Look, 
one of the dangers is if you're like crazy busy and you're too busy to have friendships, maybe clear up a little room in your schedule, okay? Because sometimes we get so busy we can't even have any time for, for fellowship and stuff like that. I want to encourage you, come and, and, and commit to us in friendship because it's not, just, um, it's not just for friendship, but it's also for the sake of the mission that we are engaged in. It's important that we have close friendships, that we can rely on each other, support one another, pray for one another, be vulnerable with one another. These are things that we must have have in order to be effective in what we're doing, which is we're fighting a war. Brothers and sisters, we are in a spiritual war. Everything I'm talking about, about these seven mountains, the whole idea is that we're in a war for our nation. And if we can't see it, then I'll tell you what happens. You just get spiritually beat up because the enemy doesn't stop fighting you when you stop fighting him. He just pounds on you spiritually. Right? Why is it that you wake up and all of a sudden you just feel, I have no vision? Right? I just don't want to worship Jesus. Right? I'll, well, I'll tell you why. You're getting beat up spiritually. You have to learn to fight in the spiritual war. You have to fight for intimacy. You have to fight for vision. You have to fight. You have to overcome yourself in your own spiritual walk for you to be effective in the fight for the nation. Am I making sense? This is a call for all of us. You cannot. Do Christianity lying down. I'll tell you what happens. You become a nominal Christian by name only. Okay? And I tell you, that is not where you want to be. Christianity loses all of its power. All of what makes it amazing loses all of it. And you also stand the real chance of losing eternal life. I'm telling you, Scripture warns that if we do not bear fruit in our spiritual life, we get cut off the vine. I don't say that in judgment. I say that in loving warning that you must fight in the spiritual walk. You have to fight for your faith. You have to fight that your eyes would be open. This is what Paul prays for the church in Ephesus. I pray that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened to know the hope of his calling. Brothers and sisters, we must have the hope of God's calling alive inside of us. That's what we're going for. That the passion that we have for his purposes continues to grow and expand in our hearts. What Carol was talking about, that's a great quote, by the way. Right? If you want to find, this is why I always say, look, finding calling is really not about yourself. It's about surrendering your life to Jesus and finding out what he's doing and then saying, God, I'm going to throw myself into what you're doing. And what happens is you get swept up in what God's doing in the earth. Does this make sense? This is why we talk about the things that we talk about. I don't talk every week about how you can be a slightly better version of you. I don't want you to be a little bit better of you. I want you to be dead to your old life. I want you to die to your old life. I want you to die to every dream that's not Jesus' dream for your life. Because every dream that's yours and not his for your life, it will only lead you into spiritual death. Brothers and sisters, we're fighting a war for our nation. When we're talking about the seven mountains, we're talking about places of cultural influence that are affecting Americans. They're affecting everybody. Why is it that the, mo the random person you talk to the street about Jesus, more often than not, they're like, I don't want to hear that. They don't even know Jesus. They don't know who he is. But they've been told all these things about Jesus and his crazy fundamentalist followers. Why have they heard these things? Because of the battle that's waging over the institutions that make up our culture. Does this make sense? 
When we're talking about things like business, today we're going to go into the news and media. When we talk about these things, hear me, I'm not trying to make you a little bit more informed citizen. Okay, I'm trying to make you an informed believer so you understand what cultural influences are affecting you so that you should be able to listen to the news and go, I know the ideology that that's coming from. That's not the Bible's ideology. That's a different ideology. If you can't discern, then you'll be influenced by it. This makes sense. This is what I'm talking about. I think when Paul is praying that the eyes of our heart would be enlightened, he's talking about this idea of having vision for God's purposes, vision for what he wants, what God's doing in the earth. I say this all the time, but I believe we are living in incredibly important and exciting times if you have spiritual eyes to see it. Let me put it to you another way. Jesus was walking the earth, and very few people understood that it was the most important time in history. Can you imagine if you were alive during the times of Jesus, right? We'd probably right, we'd listen to every sermon, right? We would not miss a Sunday, right? We'd be right there. Why? Because we have some sense of how important that era of history was. But the people of that time, they struggled, right? They just heard about some dude named Jesus. I'm like, okay, well, I'll check him out. And most people ended up leaving him and rejecting him. Why? Because their spiritual hearts were hard and their eyes were closed. They didn't realize the time of their visitation. Right? Jesus talks about that. He says, woe to you, Jerusalem. If the miracles that had been performed in you had been performed in Sodom, they would have repented. Right? But you missed the time of your visitation. Hear me. Don't miss the time of God's visitation. When God is passing by, you have an opportunity to say, God, I want to be part of what you're doing. I don't want to miss it out so I can watch another season of Netflix. I want to miss out on what you're doing because I want a respectable career. Hear me? I'm not saying you can't have a respectable career. I'm saying you can't have a respectable career that's unsurrendered to Jesus who's supposed to be the Lord of your life. Brothers and sisters, if we're serious about this, then we have to engage it. And that's everything that we're calling you to do. Don't be a Christian in name only. Don't be a Christian in name only. No, sign up for it. Sign up for it. What am I talking about? I'm saying get involved with what we're doing. Get involved with the vision. Throw yourself into our mission, which is to see revival on campuses. Throw yourself into it. Sign on the dotted line and say, God, I want to be part. Now, God might call you to a different aspect of what he's doing. Okay? I'm all for that. Sign up for it. Say, God, I'm putting your interests first in my life. But I'll tell you, this is one thing you cannot do. You can't do it on your own. You need a community that will come around you. And I'm not, I, look, when I talk about community, I'm really not talking about a large church, okay? That's, at, that's a part of a community. But what you need is you need close brothers and sisters. You need close friends that you can open up your heart to, that they can pray for you, that you can share your dreams and aspirations, and they can hear them back. You have to have those things. That's real community. doesn't matter if you show up in, in, in church every single Sunday, if you don't have have close friends who are walking together with you and going after Jesus' heart, it's going to be very difficult for you to maintain any kind of consistency in your walk with them. Am I making sense? What I'm saying is that you have to take responsibility for your own community. Look, we can plan events, and we will, and we do. We have a fellowship event coming up 
next week, right? Why, why do we do that graduation banquet, right? Well, we do it to honor the graduates, right? We love them. We want to say, love you, love you, right? But we also do it so that we have an opportunity Right, to meet together and to fellowship together and to talk together and to mingle and to laugh together and to form closer relationships. But I tell you, if you just show up like, oh, I'm just going to get this over with and I'm going to get home, well, you're missing the opportunity, right? Why is the opportunity given? So it's an opportunity for you to pursue intimacy. Does this make sense? That's the heart of it. When we come to Wednesday night services and go out to eat afterwards and somebody's going, hey, come out to eat with us. And you're like, Oh, but dude, I just want to play a little more Fortnite before I go to sleep. Right? You have the freedom to do that, okay? That's not sin, okay? But I'm saying that there's got to be something in you where you go, I want to reciprocate. I'm being invited into intimacy. Now I want to go after it myself. There's got to be a decision that I'm going to go after intimacy. Why? For the sake of our mission. Look, it's for you too. It'll make your life much more fulfilling. Right? It will bless you, but it also is so important for the sake of our mission that we come together as one, not a unity born of just human likes. Like It's not like, oh, we all like to play basketball. That's why we're close friends. Okay, well, that's, I'm, I'm glad that you have a shared activity. I love that. When I, was, when I led a fellowship in college, we played basketball three times a week. I freaking dominated all those fools. Man, pray, I praise God for my half-white blood. I was like three inches taller than all of them. I was like Shaq out there. Right? <laughs> you guys don't even know, you don't know who Shaq is, man. You guys are too, too young. Okay, anyways. I love that kind of fellowship, but that's not real godly fellowship. Does that make sense? Playing basketball together is not real godly fellowship. That's part of it. But the real godly fellowship is when you're, you're in mission together. You have a purpose together. You're walking out the purpose together. Right? Jesus didn't choose the 12 because he wanted to play board games with them. Okay, he chose them because they were his community, the ones who were going to walk out the mission of what he had been called to accomplish. Am I making sense? I challenge you to engage with what we're doing. I don't want you to leave today and be like, oh, Pastor Dennis hates the news people. No, I love the news people. I hate the spirit that has come to dominate much of this particular institution. Make sense? Why? Because that spirit is hostile to the gospel of the kingdom. The spirit is hostile to it. That's the spirit in which I'm talking about this. My hope is that our eyes would be open to see that there is no difference between having church, right, and engaging in all these areas of the world. Why? I don't want the next season of your life, once you graduate from college, to be, I've got my work life where all I do is I just work and I do taxes, and then I got my church life. No, I want you to be holistically engaged in the work of the kingdom. And to do that, you have to have vision for how to engage in the marketplace. Amen? All right, you guys ready? That was a good introduction. Praise him. All right, news in media. Lovers of the truth. This is our Discipling Culture series. And we're going to do a new segment that um, really dovetails nicely with what we're talking about, okay? All right, I hope you guys paid attention to the news this week. If you did not, don't worry. I understand there was a shooting this week at a Texas high school. Um, that happened after I prepped my message, so sorry, I'm not going to talk about it. I am going to say this. I do think that we're going to see more and more shootings in our nation. We're going to see more and more shootings in our nation. And I'll tell you, I think I know the reason why. Okay? It's because we need to invite God back into our schools. 
We need to invite his protection. There must be a belief that prayer matters in schools, right? This matters again. This is something that has been lost in American public. You understand prayer in schools was mandated until I believe like the 1960s, right? Like you had to pray in school until the 1960s. That's pretty crazy. But guess what we never had? Mass shootings in schools, right? We had just as many guns relative to the number of people, okay? We still had a ton of guns in America, but what we didn't have was we didn't have prayers or an education field that completely kicked God out of the schools. Now, hear me. I don't think that's the only reason, but I do think it's a very big reason. What's the point? Look, America believes in freedom. Freedom is, is the core value of our nation, liberty. It's, all, it's the whole reason that the Revolutionary War was fought was over this ideal of liberty and freedom. But you have to understand that freedom cannot exist without personal morality. You can't have a bunch of free people who can carry around guns and do everything they want to do without a strong sense of personal morality. Personal morality is the key. Righteousness is the key to being able to steward freedom well. Am I making sense? Right now our nation is caught in a war between how do we live, what are the values that are to govern American life, and freedom and liberty is decreasing in its esteem and its in favor is, being, is, is government control. You have to understand how these two things are linked. Without strong morality, you must have some type of government control. All right, I don't have enough time to go deep into that. The new sections that I do have time to go into, New York Times, next slide, put out this tweet this week, okay? This is one of the more, more egregious examples of fake news I've ever seen. All right, said this. This tweet from the New York Times said, Trump lashed out at undocumented immigrants during a White House meeting calling those trying to breach the country's borders, quote-unquote, animals. This was terrible, right? And, he's, and, he, and, they, and they quoted Trump here. This is what Trump said. You wouldn't believe how bad these people are. These aren't people. These are animals. And we're taking them out of the country at a level and at a rate that's never happened before. Next slide. Okay, this wasn't just the New York Times. MSNBC, Vox, C-SPAN, USA Today, BBC, CBS, the Associated Press, and the Washington Post all reported basically the same thing, okay? Now, I'm not just bagging on the Times here. Strangely enough, CNN correctly reported. They've actually surprised me in the past couple weeks. They've been, I think, making real attempts to tighten up their, their, their reporting on this kind of stuff. And they said that um, the quote was in reference to MS-13, which is a gang. And that's actually right. That's exactly what it is. I'm, in, I'm including the whole quote here, okay? This is part of a, long, a longer discussion um, between Sheriff Mims and the president. And Sheriff Mims says, thank you. There could be an MS-13 member I know about. If they don't reach a certain threshold, I cannot tell ICE about it. And the president says, we have people coming into the country or trying to come in, and we're stopping a lot of them, but we're taking people out of the country. You wouldn't believe how bad these people are. These aren't people. These are animals. And we're taking them out of the country at a level and at a rate that's never happened before. And because of the weak laws, they come in fast. We get them. We release them. We get them again. We bring them out. It is crazy. Okay? That's President Trump's quote. By the way, this is not the first time he has referred to MS-13 as animals. He did so a year ago. Um, he's done it several times, okay? He's called members of this particular gang animals. And look, I don't know that much about this gang, but everything I've heard is that they're pretty, pretty evil people, okay? Lots of rapes, mutilations, all sorts of crazy things. That's the context in which President Trump is saying this. But if you just read that tweet from the New York Times, you'd think, man, Trump is a racist, Right? You think, dude, this dude's a racist. He thinks all Mexicans are animals. Right? 
And that's, that's, you understand, that's by design to some degree. I'm not saying that, I don't think they had a purely malicious intent here, but you have to understand from the, the, in, the, in the perspective of many journalists, Trump is a racist. He's just one who's trying to hide it. So when they get a quote like this, they're like, yes, finally, we can show the world. That's kind of the mentality. They want to expose him, right? Um, there was actually a second thing that happened this week. Next slide. This is um, from the Washington Post. It said, Israelis kill more than 50 Palestinians in Gaza protest, health officials say. Okay, so if you're unfamiliar with what happened this week, the, the uh, American embassy was moved to Jerusalem. Now, this is a big deal because Palestinians want uh, uh, a capital in Jerusalem. So when we recognize Israel's capital as Jerusalem, it, it makes a lot of Palestinian people very upset. Understandable. Now, there were 40,000 protesters. You have to understand, the elected government of the Palestinian people right now is a group called Hamas. Hamas is a terrorist organization. Everybody knows that they're a terrorist organization. They are extreme radicals who are openly devoted to murdering and killing Jews, okay? They want to kill Jews. And these 40,000 protesters, look, you, you read that Washington Post headline and you think like people with signs and they're just standing there nicely and like the Israelis come in and start mowing them down, right? That's not what happened. We had 40,000 violent protesters. They were, they were tying Molotov cocktails to kites and throwing them into Israeli territory. They were trying to break down the fence so that they could break into Israel and start killing people, okay? Now, what they didn't report was that Later on, it was revealed that 58 people were killed in these riots, and 50 of them were Hamas terrorists. New York Times, as far as I know, has still not reported that. Israel was apparently using facial recognition technology to pick out the actual terrorists in the crowd and kill them. That, that blows my mind. That's pretty amazing. Um, 50 were Hamas members. This was, this was admitted by a, a leader in Hamas, and then I believe another three were part of a different terrorist organization devoted to, ki to killing Israelites, right? So this is the kind of stuff. By the way, they said health officials say, whose health officials? The Palestinian Health Ministry. That's not exactly an unbiased report in terms of the, the numbers and stuff like that. So what, what's my point here? My point is right now we have a deeply dishonest media in a lot of ways, okay? A deeply dishonest media. I want to explain why that is the case um, next slide. You may have seen this graphic going around on the internet. Now, it's probably kind of small for you to see. Okay, we've got um, the idea here is that these are the news organizations that are biased right, right? Whoa, whoa, whoa. Bring it back. There we go. These are the new news organizations that are biased to the right. These are the conservative, like Fox News, right? It's all the way there in questionable journalistic value. Fox News, by the way, you know, Fox News is the, is the largest of the, of the news networks by a good amount, right? They're the most popular. And then on the left, you've got like, you know, Huffington Post. Yeah, they're, they're on the left. Daily Cost, right? Daily Cost is, in, is like the mirror image of Fox News right here, okay? And, and then what you have is these are the ones that you can trust, okay? The ones that are, these are the ones that are unbiased and you can trust them. And you have Washington Post, New York Times, NPR, the Associated Press, ABC, NBC, basically all the big traditional media players. These are the trusted, unbiased sources. Can I just say this thing is a gigantic lie? This thing is a gigantic lie. Everything needs to be shifted over at least one position to the left. 
Okay, look, my most trusted source of news is right there. Daily Wire, right under conspiracy theories. <laughs> Garbage slash com conspiracy theories, right? Look, I, I realized I realize that the news was incredibly biased when I was in college, okay? When I was in college, um, actually, this was a little bit after college. This was a little bit after, I, when I, I, I was still in Berkeley. I was leading a ministry there, and I, um, and I kept reading all these news articles about the Tea Party, right? And I was reading these news articles, and I'm like, who are these racist bigots in Alabama? I was like, man, these guys are freaking racist. It's crazy. And then I actually did some research to find out who the Tea Party was. And I was like, oh, shoot, I'm Tea Party. <laughs> I read this, I was like, they're talking about me, right? That's when I realized, oh my gosh, these guys are deeply biased. Like, it's not a small thing. It's like a major thing. And yet these are the trusted sources. These are the ones that everybody is supposed to trust, all those ones right in the middle, right there. But I tell you, all of those guys are, are on the left. Wall Street Journal is the closest one. I think, to, uh, I, I think Wall Street Journal does a pretty solid job of being fairly even-handed. Okay? I think they do. I actually think Fox News does a, a, a pretty decent job. Now, I understand they are on the right. I think they are biased to the right. But I think they do a fairly decent job, and, I, and I'll, I'll get to why. But first, you have to understand, there's an entire apparatus supporting this thing, right? Like, there's fact checkers. Next slide. Like, one of the biggest ones is PolitiFact, okay? Now, I'm not going to read this whole thing, but in 2013, a study was done by George Mason University. What they found was that PolitiFact found Republicans to be three times as dishonest as Democrats, now, is that true? Is it just that there's a bunch of liars in the Republican Party, like they lie three times as much? Can I just tell you, no, that's not what is happening, okay? What's happening is that there's a deep bias within even these fact checkers, and they, they agree more with the ideology of the left, and that's what we're going to get into in a second here. But a couple more pieces of evidence. Next, next slide here. Look, the news coverage of Trump, you have to look at this. Only two of 59 major newspapers that endorse political candidates endorse Trump. Okay, two out of 59. 96% of journalists who donated in this election campaign donated to Hillary Clinton. 96%. In, in polling days before the election, the New York Times had an 86% chance for Clinton to win. I, I swear it was over 90. I just checked it again today. I, th I thought for sure it was over 90 if I remembered, but they said 86. Huffington Post had Clinton winning by, had a 98% chance of victory. Okay, this is supposedly in unbiased national polls. Does it make sense? Right? They all read these polls as saying Clinton is for sure going to win. Harvard University School of Public Policy did a study of Trump's first 100 days in office. What they found was that Trump dominated the news cycle. 41% of news stories were about President Trump. That's three times as many news stories as, as any other president. Okay, And 80% of those stories were negative. Only 20% was positive. And in contrast, look at Obama's first 100 days. 59%, 60% of news stories were positive about Obama, and only 41% were negative. Now, that 80% that of stories being negative, I bet none of y'all saw a positive article about Trump during those 100 days, right? If you barely, if you, unless you're like me, who like reads a lot of news, like you probably didn't see one positive article about Trump. That's because, look at the next slide, that 80% is, 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 
you know, a little, uh, it's hard to understand it. Fox News is why it's 80%. Okay? Fox gave 52% negative press coverage to Trump in his first 100 days and only 48% positive. Look at CNN, 93%. NBC, 93%. New York Times, 87% negative. It was dominated by negative coverage of Trump. Now, why, why, do, I, why do I bring some of this stuff up? Because there is some serious bias that I think one thing, look, I, I have to say this. For those of you who are part of BTM through the whole election cycle, I was giving commentary on it the whole way through. I always said that I, I wanted Rubio or Cruz to win. They were my picks during the Republican primary. When it was pretty obvious that Trump was going to win it, I had to wrestle with, with President Trump. I really wrestled in my heart because it was obvious that this was an immoral dude, okay? Anybody who argues that Trump is a moral paragon, I don't, I've never actually heard somebody make that argument, okay? Maybe it exists somewhere, okay? He's not, he's not a very moral guy. But I will say this. He's been the best president of my lifetime so far. In terms of what my ideals are and what I stand for, President Trump has been the most conservative. He's been the greatest defender of religious rights for sure, right? Um, but you would never know that if you only read New York Times articles about Trump. You'd think he was the worst president of all time, right? In, from my side, where I'm looking at, not looking at the rhetoric, I think his rhetoric sucks, okay? I hate a lot of his rhetoric. But looking at his policy, what he's actually done, I have been extremely impressed with President Trump, especially considering that he has had to go unprecedented negative news. He's had the news after him like no other president, I don't, probably in history. And that's, that's just not usual. It's not usual to see this kind of thing. Go back to the last slide. And that's why there, and there's been this major impeachment effort, right? If you remember, at the beginning of Trump's, Trump's uh, inauguration, it was all about Russian collusion. And literally every story coming out of the mainstream media, the headline was Russian collusion and how this is Russian collusion and that is. And then it seemed like the evidence for it just wasn't panning out. Van Jones from CNN basically admitted that this is a nothing burger, there's nothing really here. And it started to shift, and all of a sudden, Stories started coming out every day about obstruction, or excuse me, a mental insanity, right? Trump was mentally unfit for office. And all, like, Nancy Pelosi was talking about this. All these prominent Democrats were how he was mentally insane. And then it moved on to obstruction of justice, right? He's, like, trying to obstruct, and that's the grounds for which we can impeach him. And now it's moved on to this whole Stormy Daniels thing. If you follow, you know, if you follow Trump or any of this stuff, it's like every article's on Stormy Daniels. So, Trump has called this the witch hunt, right? They're after me. And I, it looks like a witch hunt. It looks like they're fishing for any reason whatsoever to get rid of this guy, okay? I think it, it is the, the most obvious bias I have ever seen in the news. I'm now, I'm pretty young. I'm only 35. Some of you are like, you're so old, right? No, I'm really young, actually, right? I'm only 35, okay? But I'll tell you, Something has shifted. Something serious has shifted, okay? Go, go to the, the next slide. It's contrast these, the, this type of reporting with news in the 1950s through the 1970s. In the 1950s through the 1970s, it was basically impossible to tell the political affiliation of any news anchor. You could not tell, okay? During this era, there was a dude named Walter Cronkite. Any of you guys heard of this guy? 
This guy dominated cable network television. He was the most trusted man in America. That was literally what he was called. I believe Lyndon Johnson, when he found out that uh, Walter Cronkite was against him, he said, it's over for me. I've lost, right? Because everybody trusts Walter Cronkite. This guy was extremely influential as a news anchor, and no one had any idea whether he was a Democrat or Republican, right? Nobody had any clue because all he would do is he would report the facts as unbiased as he possibly could. Right? That was news culture in the you know, prior to the 1970s. That was news culture. Traditional journalism, one of the most important ethics of traditional journalism was impartiality. Right? They were just supposed to report the facts and leave the American people, give them the information that they could trust and let them make up their own minds. That was the mentality. Right? Now, as I said, all that started shifting, um, especially in the 80s. Okay? Next slide. And how, how did this happen? How did we go from Walter Cronkite to what we have today? How did that happen? There, there's a number of reasons. Number one, I think it's important to say this. I don't think that most journalists are purposefully dishonest. Now, some absolutely are. Okay, Some are ridiculously dishonest. I've been shocked this past year by the dishonesty that I've seen, the open, naked dishonesty. But... For the most part, the vast majority of journalists are not intentionally dishonest. What's happened is that the worldview has shifted. Okay, the worldview has shifted. Now, specifically, I'm talking about the growth of socialism. Okay, now when I talk about socialism, you have to understand I'm not just talking about a political ideology, I'm talking about a worldview. Okay, let me put it to you another way. Why is it that socialist countries almost always start to persecute people of religion? Why are they all irreligious because it's a different worldview okay it's a different worldview uh, the best way i put it is that in many ways socialist ideology it's a religion i think that's the best way to understand it okay that it's a religion when we talk about secular humanism secular humanism is a religion what am, what's my point i'm saying this for you to be an atheist you have to have faith that god does not exist it is not provable. You cannot prove that God does not exist. In the same way that we can't prove beyond a reasonable doubt that he does exist. There's just too much data. We can't process all the data out there. What's the point? Nobody can prove beyond a reasonable doubt that God doesn't exist. And yet, if you're an atheist, you have made an incredible leap of faith. Okay? You now believe for sure you know God does not exist. Can I tell you what that is? That is a religion. That is a religion. And that's the religion that has come to dominate America in these places of cultural influence. I'm going to call it socialism. It can have a number of different words, means to explain it. But the socialist you know, moniker, I think, helps us understand the nature of this religion and how it functions, okay? So what happened? Universities started to become dominated by socialist ideology. Guess where all journalists get trained these days? That's right. The same place where you're getting trained. All right? They get trained in American universities. Okay. They go to university, their professors are imparting a socialist worldview to them. We already talked about when we did family, we talked about in the 1960s and 70s what happened. There was a countercultural revolution. 
Now, I heard from um, an author named Megan McDonald, Heather McDonald, excuse me. She writes in the Wall Street Journal, and she's written a book called War on Cops. But she was talking, she gave a really fascinating understanding of what fueled the counterculture revolution. She was saying that in the 1950s, what happened is that America reached an unprecedented level of money. Basically, we got super affluent in the 1950s. And if you know your history, it's because after World War II, we, all the competing you know, companies and industries in Europe got smashed. Guess whose industries weren't smashed? Ours. So what did we do? We sold them Coca-Cola. Everywhere, all across the world, everyone found out about Coca-Cola. Why? Because American companies filled in the void that had been created by the destruction of Europe. And that's why, if you look at the Dow Jones, if you look at the stock market, all throughout the 50s, it looks like this. Right? It's just taking off. What happened? Americans got so rich that for the first time in history, teenagers had a lot of money. First time in history. Teenagers had all this money, and companies started to create products and market products directly to teenagers rather than to their parents. And so what did it do? It created a countercultural movement. All of a sudden, the voice of teenagers becomes amplified in society. And this is really the reason why, you know, bands like the Beatles start blowing up all of a sudden. All the teenagers are going crazy for the Beatles. They're selling albums all over the place. Their influence is, is going everywhere, and it leads to a movement of young people who say, we don't need the traditional values that our parents hold. We don't need those things anymore. It empowers the voice of youth. Now, answer question, is that a biblical value? Boy, I hope if you've ever read your Bible that you understand that that is a deeply unbiblical value. This idea that we should throw off the wisdom of previous generations, we don't need that anymore. Holy cow, you can't find a more unbiblical value than this, right? Everything's about honoring elders, honoring their wisdom, receiving inheritance, honoring mother and father so that it goes well with you and you live a long life on the earth, right? Everything is why? Because the only way that wisdom is transferred from one generation to the next, right, is through honor. You cannot transfer generational wisdom when there's a break with the youth culture. When it happens, when youth are empowered in their rebelliousness, and they go, I don't need that wisdom. I don't need those old people with wisdom, right? I got enough wisdom of my own. Yeah, you got enough wisdom to destroy your country, Okay. That's literally what has happened in America. Okay, young people grew up and they never grew up here. And now they're teaching in our universities. That's right. Now they're armed with all the statistics and the data and they got no wisdom. That's your professor in a nutshell. Oh, shoot, did I just slam your professor? Dang straight. <laughs> Dang straight I just slammed him. Okay. Now hear me, my, my desire here is not to make you hate your professor. It's to make you distrust the worldview that is being taught to you in your university. Absolutely. Let me put it to you another way. If some of your professors, now some of you go to Biola, I ain't talking about y'all, okay? I ain't talking about y'all, okay? If your professor understands that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, I'm not talking about your professor. But if your professor reads that quote and goes, yeah, right, I am talking about your professor, I'm telling you that you can have all this knowledge and no wisdom. I think that's a pretty biblically safe thing to say. I think that's the situation that we've entered to 
on our university campuses. Guess what? These universities start to train all these people in the social, this socialist ideology. And what's happened is it started to influence all sorts of different places in culture. It's taken over especially strong in journalism. Okay? You have to understand the thing about socialism is this. It's primarily an ideology of oppressed versus oppressor. Okay? Karl Marx, the dude who came up with it, he tried to turn the workers against the owners. Right? All the workers should rise up, take the owner's stuff, and share it, and everything will be good. Now, does that sound reasonable? No, that sounds like you trying to get a bunch of rich people killed. And a lot of people bought into this garbage, and this explains basically the 20th century. Okay? The 20th century is a story of how socialism almost destroyed the entire world. That's right. Socialism. Yes, even the Nazis, the National Social something, Workers' Party, right? National Socialist Workers' Party. It's the same ideology. It's the ideology of those people are hurting you, and if you hurt them back and take their stuff, everything will be great. Does that sound like biblical wisdom to you? It shouldn't. It should sound like the opposite of biblical wisdom. Okay? It should sound like the opposite. Guess what? People are not your enemy. That's Bible 101, okay? People are not your enemy. Our war is not against flesh and blood. It's against the spiritual forces of wickedness, okay? This is lesson number one. This should be easy to discern, and guess what? It was in American history. Guess which country was uniquely resistant to the socialist message? Oh, the most Christian country in the world. Coincidence? No! not coincidence, okay? It's an oppressed versus oppressor mentality, and you have to understand that's the, the mentality that's been transferred on today, and now we're dealing with a neo, that just means a new socialism. The new socialism is not primarily aimed at rich versus poor. It's aimed at minority versus oppressor, okay? So that's why when the New York Times writers look at the Gaza situation, what do they see? They see a bunch of oppressed Palestinians, who are being oppressed by an Israel state that wants them to suffer and take their land. I'll tell you, it's that root ideology, it's the religion that causes them to see the situation in that light. Can I tell you what the truth is? That Israel was lawfully given its land by the UN. Okay, if you don't know your history of Israel, you know, Britain controlled that whole area. They pulled out, and the UN granted a two-state situation, Palestinians and Israelis. What happens? All these Arab states immediately attack Israel. Israel miraculously wins the war. Okay, they keep their state. Fast forward 20 years, they're attacked again. Israel takes Jerusalem and some other land. Why? Because they're being staged. They're launching attacks against Israel from these places. They take this land. You have to understand, from all, all the neo-socialists can see is oppressed versus oppressor. And there's this natural desire to defend the Palestinians because they see them as the ones who are being oppressed. Can I say this? Israel has offered land for peace. They've offered the two-state solution. They've offered it to the Palestinian government three times. Okay, three times. And they have been rejected. They've been turned down all three times in land for, for peace deals. Why? Because no Palestinian government ever will accept any amount of land given over to the Israelis. 
Okay, that's the situation we're dealing with, okay? There are 1.7 million Arabs who live in Israel as Israeli citizens, who vote, who have jobs, who are getting along just fine. It's not a racism issue. Does this make sense? Why is it that the media hates Trump? Because Trump is the oppressor. He looks like the caricature of the American oppressor, right? He's this rich billionaire white guy by the way, they all think he's a Christian because he says he's a Christian. Okay. I don't, I don't know what to say about that. Right. And, and he's like predatory, right? What he does is he, he whoa, that's loud. He buys, he buys these buildings, right? And, he, and then he, he, he oppresses the workers and all this kind of stuff. They see him as this caricature of American oppression. And then they take all his comments. Oh, yeah, he doesn't like this Mexican judge. He's a racist, right? They take all this stuff and they read in their ideology into all of his comments. I've had numerous discussions with people about whether Trump is a racist. I really don't think he is. Now, let me qualify that. Do I think he has some level of racism? Yeah, because I think pretty much everybody does. I think pretty much everybody has some degree of, of racism in their hearts, right? Because we're all dealing with that to some degree. Now, I think he, he probably does have some. Do I think it is far out of proportion to everybody else? No, I, I really don't think so. I really don't think so. In fact, I never heard accusations of him being a racist when he was a Democrat. He was a Democrat not that long ago, you know, like five, six years ago. He was a Democrat, right? Never heard any accusations of racism against him then, right? But what's happened, now that he's come onto the conservative side, you have to understand there's been a widespread effort to paint the conservatives as racists. Guess what? I get called racist all the time. I'm racist? What am I doing here then? My white people. Right? No, like it's so routines. I, I was joking today. I'm a disabled person of color. I am colorblind. I don't know if you know this. I have a disability and I'm a person of color. I, I'm just kidding. But that gives me some kind of, of weird, you know, credibility in, <laughs> in this whole thing. Why? Because if you're part of a victim group, you have innate credibility. Does this make sense? If you're part of the oppressed people, then you have a reason to speak. Right? But if you're part of the evil conglomerate of you know, white Christian rich people, then you have no voice in where socialism reigns. Does this make sense? Right. Now you have to understand, journalists increasingly see their role as helping the oppressed versus the oppressor. Okay, guess what? That's not just in journalism. You go to a lot of churches these days, and you hear a lot about God's heart for justice. Can I just tell you that is code word? for socialism, okay? That's code word. Now, I don't say that demeaningly because there's a lot of great pastors who have bought into this. I read a book this past week called The Myth of Equality by a, basically a liberal Christian, and I'll tell you, I read through the entire thing, and I actually know the data, right, that he's quoting. Every single one of the stats that he gave, I can give a, a strong rebuttal to every single one. He didn't mention any of them. There's this whole narrative of white supremacy and white racism that, has, that people believe now, and it really is part of a socialist understanding to disempower Christian ideology. Yes, it is against Christian biblical ideology. I know that sounds weird, and it would take me another couple hours to give you all the data to support it, okay? But I will say, I think right now, we're actually in really exciting times because the data is now out there, and it's everywhere. 
okay? You don't have to go very far anymore to find the data that absolutely destroys the, the myth of inequality. I'll call it that. There is real, no, we live in the most equal society probably in the history of the world. I know that's hard to understand, but you know what the truth is? The systemic racism that exists, you know where it is? It's against you guys. Or is, or is it fair that you have to score like 200 points higher on your SAT? Because you're so privileged, you enjoy all the white privilege, right? No, of course not. Most of you come from, from poor backgrounds. But when you're, in, when you're in group identity and you're successful, then the only explanation is that you must have advantages that make it unfair. Does this make sense? That's right, Asians, you're on your way out of the, the victim pyramid. You're, you're pretty much going to get lumped in. It's going to be Asian white privilege soon, okay? Okay, now I say this, you know, in a kind of a joking way, but I understand this is not a joking matter, okay? I understand that for a lot of people, they have a real heart to help those who are disenfranchised, who are dispossessed, who are abused, and I have a lot of compassion for that, okay? I think that's a very good thing. I think a lot of people, when they talk about social justice, they're talking really primarily about charity, about helping the poor. Now, let me just say, I am all about that. Okay, I'm all about that. The lie is that conservatives are not about that. Can I just say, according to statistics and data, conservatives give far more of their personal wealth to charitable causes than liberals. Okay? If Jesus says, you know, where your heart is, there your treasure will be also, if he's right about that, then I'm the one. I'm the one who cares about the poor. Okay? But if we buy into this narrative, I just want to say that's the problem here. The narrative is built on a religion that is untruthful and unbiblical, okay? And it's part of socialism. And that's why I keep bringing it up because, to me, socialism is not a political ideology. It's an ideology that has set itself up against the knowledge of God. And what you'll find is that people who get strongly into concepts like social justice, you have to understand why social justice is a bad thing, okay? If we're talking about charity, that's a wonderful thing. But the terminology around which social justice is built is to say that it's unjust that some people are poorer and some are richer. That that constitutes an injustice. Well, that's, that's interesting because Jesus said that you're always going to have the poor with you. He, always, he talks about how in the age to come, some will have great rewards and some few rewards. Oh, shoot. There's going to be poor people in the age to come. Well, yeah, relatively speaking. So is God's perfect kingdom unjust? Right? I don't think so. Let me put you another way. If you studied all night long for your test and your friend, you know, played pool, that was my first, my first final in college. <laughs> my first final in college, my, me and my friend started playing pool that night. Placed a little friendly wager, like $5, right? I won, right? And he's like, double or nothing, right? I won again. Double or nothing. We double or nothing all night long. I kept beating him. I was up like over $1,000. I was like destroyed. But the problem is, you know, at that point, you know, I'm never, I'm never going to get, you know, paid for that. So we just literally played all night long, right? We looked at our watches at like 7 a.m. Our final's at 8. We're like, oh, shoot. We better study. We ran out of this before I was a pastor, okay? I'm not saying you should, I'm not saying you should gamble or anything like that, okay? I'm just saying I played pool all night long. Now, is it fair for me to do just as well on my test as the guy who didn't study? Well, of course not. Guy who did study? Right? Of course not. Right? What's the point? Equality of opportunity is the, is, the, is the true equality that matters. Right? When we fixate on equality of outcome, that everybody must have the same outcome, well, then what we do is we run right into the socialist narrative. Okay? Because that's what socialism, that's the promise that it always overpromises. 
yes, we should have equality of outcome. That's what God wants. He wants equality of outcome. The problem is that when you buy into that lie, what you get is poverty for everyone. Okay, that's the story of how socialism has always been implemented. And that is also the story of, that continues today. Okay, next slide. How did this happen? Number three, the internet released unprecedented competition against newspapers for readers. So guess what? Where do you get your news? I bet you don't get a, a delivered copy of the New York Times. No, I know what you do. You just slide through Facebook and all of a sudden, boom, there's a news article and you click on it. Social media has come to dominate news distribution now. And what we have is we have blogs, we have all this kind of stuff. So what happened? Traditional media has sensationalized the news to compete. Okay, and we talked about this when we talked about business. Fear often makes companies sacrifice long-term vision for short-term profits. And the last thing, impartiality is increasingly abandoned as a journalistic standard. Why? Because it's seen as impossible in this era. Next slide. Jonathan Holmes, a reporter, journalist, said this, but it's true that the days of objective reporting, cool, factual, impartial, unemotional, devoid of adjectives or personality or any trace of personal opinion are well and truly over. It might be admirable in theory. In practice, unfortunately, it's too bloody dull. Okay, Denny Dressman, writing at the Huffington Post, said the political polarization of America is a lot like the international arms race. No media segment can afford to emphasize solid, straightforward reporting, while others continue to feature sensational and provocative commentary. Political journalism, at least, is at least dying in America. Lewis Wallace, who is a transgender journalist at American Public Media, was fired for writing this blog post. Neutrality isn't real. Neutrality is impossible for me, and you should admit it is for you too. As a member of the marginalized community, I am transgender. I've never had the opportunity to pretend I can be neutral. After years of silence, denial about our existence, the media has finally picked up trans stories, but the nature of the debate is over whether or not we should be allowed to live and participate in society, use public facilities, and expect not to be harassed, fired, or even killed. Obviously, I can't be neutral or centrist in a debate over my own humanity. The idea that I don't have a right to exist is not an opinion, it is a falsehood. Okay, I want to take that quote because, look, this guy got fired over this, okay? That's a good thing. He should have been fired for this. Why? Because he's completely abandoned impartiality. Right? He's like, I sh what he's arguing right here is that I should not be impartial. Why? Because those people are trying to kill me. Who's he talking about? Me. I don't even know this guy. Right? I'm fine with him being a journalist. I just want him to be an impartial journalist. But you have to understand when you buy into the oppressed versus oppressor narrative, you see anybody on that side of the aisle is your enemy. You're now part of a war where you're fighting against those people who are fueled by bad motivations. Does this make sense? So now all of a sudden, I'm being impugned, and guess what? You are too. Why? Because you're in a church on a Sunday. They're talking about you, brothers and sisters, okay? We are being impugned as having all of this hatred and anger towards random transgender people. Does this make sense?